This book, kind of like Ephesians, was also written um, likely at the end of Paul's earthly ministry. It's likely written from Rome. Um, it was, a pri- it was a written from prison to the Philippians in likely 62 AD. So um, from what we can tell from the introduction of the letter, the church is, move this on, uh, church is healthy. Um, and Paul wants to continue to see them grow in their faith and to continue to reflect um, Christ's likeness. And he wants them to devote their life to following in Christ's footsteps. Um, so the book is written to the saints that are in Philippi. So, setting the scene, like we said, um, like written in 62 AD, um, gospel is really the emphasis of this book. He wants, he wants them to see that for Paul, and the theme of the, the, theme of the book is really to live, um, to live as Christ. And Paul basically goes back to that continually throughout the book of his life, he, his life was to live as Christ and to die as gain, which I believe is the key verse as well. So, the uh, map, uh, we're going to dive right into chapter 1. Um, Paul begins the book by praising God for their testimony and praising God that they, uh, for their faith and the work that God began in them. I think a good way to start out is um, verse 6 says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, so God, God is the one that began this work in them, so that's obviously redemption. That's God making them alive, as Ephesians says, who were dead in their trespasses and sins, making them alive, but then it doesn't stop there. And the same is true with us. Our, our Christian journey doesn't begin, it doesn't end at salvation, it begins at salvation. And so he's, he's um, telling them that he's confident that, that God that began this work in them will continue it in their sanctification as they grow to be more and more like Christ. So, moving on to the questions, and I apologize the words had been really small. I fixed it. So you should be able to read it. I'm sorry for that. Um, it hit me last week. So first question was, even in imprisonment, where is Paul's focus in verse 12? To advance the gospel, right? So Paul is sitting there in prison, and he doesn't want the uh, Philippian believers to be worried about him. He wants them, he wants them to know, hey, look, my goal, even here in prison, is the advancement of the gospel. I want the gospel to go out to as many people as humanly possible. And he devoted his life. This was Paul's life after his conversion. And through his imprisonment, he brings it out that through his imprisonment, the whole imperial guard knows that he's there for the cause of Christ. And how, how would that strike you? I mean, that just brings a whole new relevance. It's one thing to say, I'm devoted to Christ. I go to church every Sunday, okay? It's another thing to be in prison and say, I am here for the cause of Christ. I am so devoted to serving Christ that I am gladly here in prison, and I'm going to tell you all about it. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. And how much more do you think that these jailers are willing to listen to him? This faith is real, okay? And they can see that. The fact that this guy is willingly in prison, happily in prison, for the sake of Christ, raises the relevance of the gospel. And it also, with question two, what effect did, this, did his imprisonment have on other believers that were not in prison? What's the second question? Yes, Hodge. Right. Yeah, so then they're seeing Paul and he's going, oh, well, he's proclaiming it in prison. 
And uh, so it's making them more bold. It's making them confident to speak of Christ. And uh, Christianity faced opposition up to this point. They hadn't faced the severe persecution that was coming very soon. Um, But as Christianity really, I'm going to say, comes out of Judaism. Judaism had a lot of protection from Rome. But as Christianity kind of branches out from Judaism and becomes its own religion, and it's seen that, um, it began to face more and more opposition from both, obviously, Jews, but also outsiders because they start viewing it as a threat and they, um, and they want to make sure that they are devoted to Rome. And so they did start facing some persecution. But those, those believers were more confident after seeing what Paul was doing in prison. Question three. What is Paul's response to those who are proclaiming Christ for selfish reasons? Yes. Right, right. So Paul doesn't really care what their motives are. He's like, the gospel's going out, I'm going to rejoice. And so his, and I wanted to make something crystal clear. This gospel that they're proclaiming is the true gospel, Okay. He wouldn't, be procl- he wouldn't be rejoicing if this gospel was an altered version of the gospel and wasn't the true gospel, okay? This gospel is going out, is the true gospel, and he's rejoicing because while they're trying to do it to add affliction to Paul, Paul doesn't care because Paul's life is to proclaim Christ and to expand the gospel. So if these people are doing it to try to afflict Paul, Paul's like, all right, well, gospel is going out, so I'm going to rejoice. And he's thankful for... Um, the fact that the gospel is going out and progressing. All right. Second set of questions. What is Paul's eager expectation and hope while he is in prison? Yes. Right. So Paul is like, um, Paul had quite literally presented his body as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. So he wanted, whether it meant by life or by death, he wanted Christ to be proclaimed through his body. And his life was defined by serving Christ. And so as, as Paul went on his, um, on his serving Christ, uh, that, was, that was his... Um, that was his purpose. And, you know, he would get this famous verse, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, right? So for Paul, living meant serving Christ. So he's serving Christ. And then he's like, for me to die is actually gain because now if I die, I'm going to be in the presence of God, right? And I'm going to be serving him perfectly, right? Because he's going to be in heaven with him. He's going to be able to see him. So for Paul, he quite literally could say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain for myself. Um, which I think brings us to the next question. Are we living our lives today in a way that we could say with Paul, for me to live is, ty- for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain? And that's a hard question. I'm not asking anyone to answer that. that was, I, I think it struck me. Do I live my life in a way that I could say, my life is so defined by the gospel and is so defined by Christ that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think a lot of times, especially in um, this country, we get so 
sucked into the pleasures of this world, and it is, our life is not defined by Christ. He's a part of it, but it doesn't define who we are. So just a quick challenge for you. And then moving on to verse 23, what happens to believers once they die and depart from this life? Paul said, for me to die is gain. What happens after we die? They're with Christ, right. So as soon as you die, you're in the presence of the Lord, okay? And uh, this, I wanted to bring something out. Um, This passage really refutes the idea of, it's called soul sleeping. So there's some people that would say that once you die, you kind of go into this, holding chamber until the end of time. No, no, no. As soon as you die, you're in the presence of your Savior, okay? Once you're there, and um, so he refutes that false doctrine, and um, a lot of times the New Testament will use, um, and they fell asleep, okay? That sleep is kind of like, it's a metaphor for death. It's not saying that they're going into this sleeping, they're going to wait until the end. Um, To die means to be in the presence of the Savior, And on the flip side, we have the parable that was in Luke um, 16 where it talks about um, Lazarus and the rich man, right? And so we have the picture there. And so on the flip side, someone that is not saved, once they die, they go to hell or Sheol, um, which is, they'll be there until the judgment, which at that point in time, after the judgment, the hell and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. So, there is no, there is no um, holding chamber. Once you die, um, you're either going to be in the presence of your Savior uh, or the other. So, all right. Moving on. Uh, Paul tells the Philippians believers to let their manner of life be worthy of what? The gospel, right? So Paul's whole life is about the gospel for him to live as Christ. So his whole life is about the gospel. And he's like, you guys need to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Okay, Christ saved you. Live in a way that is consistent with God's revealed word. Okay, and um, as, Ephi- as Ephesians 4.1 says, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, so Christ has saved us and called us out of this world to be devoted to him. And when people look at you, do they see the love of Christ? Do they see the love that Christ had when he died on the cross to save us from our sins? And it should be evidence in our life so that if an unsaved person sees us, he sees something different. He sees the love of Christ. He sees something that he needs. And that's when we can say, let me tell you about Christ. Let me, show, let me tell you why I am different. And it's not because of us. It's not because of what I've done. It's because of the cross. It's because of what Christ did for me to save me from my sins. So what are some things that would be seen in someone living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Yes, Hutch. Right. They'd be unified and they'd, ha- they'd be focused on Christ and that would be the central point, yes. Yep. Any others? Yes. The passage also says that we're not alarmed by opponents of the gospel, and then it would be granted to us that we suffer for Christ's sake. So suffering 
it's a hard thought to swallow in this uh, day and age, right, where we live. We think of su- when we think of suffering, we think of, ooh, that doesn't sound great. But to be able to suffer for the name of Christ is, is glorious. And it's an honor to be able to suffer for someone that gave so much for us. You think about what he did. And we're going to look at that, I think it's in chapter 2, maybe chapter 3. All right, so let's keep moving to chapter 2, okay? What is Paul's hope for the believers in the church of Philippi, according to chapter 2, verse 2? Yes. He wanted to be unified. You guys see this trend coming out? I think I saw it in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and I think it's in Colossians too. He wants them to be unified. He wants them to be of the same mind. He wants them to be together, not divided, okay? How should we view ourselves and serve others within the church? Yes. Right. Humility. Okay. He's like, you got to serve others and you got to um, view others more significant than yourselves. I think of the way he said it. And to serve one another in humility. So what happens? Okay. So we're in church. What happens if someone is serving in the church and it's not in humility? What if they're doing something and they're like, oh, I'm going to do this. You guys see what I'm doing over here? Okay. Look at, look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing. In that instance, Who's getting the glory? It's all coming to me, which is completely opposite of where it should be, right? Because if we're doing it, as we're serving in humility, who should be getting the glory? It should be going to God. So by us serving, serving is great, but if you're not serving in humility, you're getting all the glory, and the glory should be going to God. So what does Paul put on display in 5 through 8 as the ultimate display of humility? Right, the humbling of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, I can't think of anything else that would be a better example than what Christ did. He is the radiance of God. He, he is God. And he gave up heaven. He gave up being there in the presence of God. And he humbled himself. And he took on the form of human flesh. He was 100% man. Can you imagine that Forget everything else that he did. That alone, the fact that he would be willing to leave heaven to be born in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. He didn't come as a king. He came as a servant. And he lived his life. He gave up everything. He, he was the son of a carpenter. He stepped down. He, not only did he do that, but he emptied himself. He voided all of his privileges that he had as God of the universe. And he took on the form of a baby, a human. Became a slave. He was born as a man. He humbled himself. But it goes even further than that. Because what else did he do, which is the ultimate sign of the humility of Christ? His death on the cross, right? There is nothing more humiliating. I don't know if you guys have ever studied the Roman crucifixion. It was meant to be a public display of humiliation to the point where they would not crucify a Roman citizen. It was not, any citizen of Rome would never see that because it was such a humiliating experience. They would literally take this person that was an enemy of the state 
and they would take him down and they would put him up at a point where everyone can see him. Everyone can see what's happening. And they, that's where they crucified our Savior. And they crucified him for everyone to see. And he went through that for us. What humility. The God of the universe chose to die as a sacrifice. The most humiliating death imaginable for us. I don't think that there's anything, anything more of a better example than the humility of Christ. They showed coming to earth, giving up, voiding his divine rights, and dying on the cross to save us. It's the ultimate display of humility. So, what happened after Christ's death on the cross? 9 9 through 11. Yes. Right. He is. And he will never, he, his death was one time. He never will have to die again. And because of Christ's humiliation, it became grounds for his exaltation. And he is seated at the right hand of God. And by, by humbling himself and going to the cross, he demonstrated his love for us and his divine nature as God. And he did that to save us. And in obedience to the Father, right? He perfectly obeyed the Father in going to the cross as a sacrifice. One thing, I, th- I think it's interesting, um, and this doesn't really relate, but I thought it was interesting that I believe it's Deuteronomy. It's either Deuteronomy or Leviticus where it says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The Jews, by his death on the cross and the fact that he hung on a tree, they did not expect someone to go to that level. And so by the fact that this Messiah that was claiming to be Christ would do that became a stumbling block to the Jews because their scriptures say, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so our Savior did that for us. And as you serve others, I think you should remember and keep in mind the humility that Christ showed both in coming to earth and dying as a sacrifice to save us. So, moving on to the second section of questions. What does Paul tell us to do in verse 12? Yes, sorry. Yep. Obey. To work out our own salvation. Yeah. So, yes. That's a, so, in salvation, when he says work out your own salvation, Paul is not saying to complete all these works to gain salvation. But, as Kaylee said, it's, it's daily living for Christ. It's daily obedience to what his word says. Work out your own salvation. Follow Christ. Walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. And it's continual day in, day out. And he's telling these believers to live, have your life reflect Christ, to live as Christ. So in your own words, explain, like, explain what this looks like for you today. What would it look like to work out your own salvation? Yep. 
So let your life be defined by Christ and what he says in his word and to work out your own salvation or sanctification, I think would probably be the best in our mindset. Was probably what uh, he's looking for in this word salvation. All right. So if we are working out our salvation in front of crooked and twisted generation, what will happen? Verse 15. Yes. Right. And the light is going to shine on the darkness, right? And I think we saw that in Ephesians where we're supposed to be light in this world. We're supposed to live out um, what Christ has called us to. And as a result, it's going to shine, shine a light on the darkness and it's going to be evident that it's wrong, right? And so we should shine as lights in this world um, and serve Christ rather than ourselves. All right, chapter 3. Paul warns them to watch out for Judaizers who are trying to add Old Testament laws and regulations for the Gentile believers. According to verse 3, who is the true circumcision? Yes. Right. So it's really, it's really interesting that so Judaizers would have been saying you have to be circumcised. You have to be circumcised. You have to do obey this law, and then Paul is like, you believers who are in Christ are the true circumcision. This is the real circumcision. This is the circumcision of the heart, and that's what really matters, right? It's, a, it's an inward spiritual cleansing and not a meaningless outward sign, okay? In the Old Testament, they had a sign which was circumcision, and we saw it with Abraham, going back to Abraham, and Circumcision was a sign that you were part of God's people. But in the Old Testament, or, or in the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And circumcision is, of, is inward, not outward. So Paul, Paul brings out that, that difference. And um, he brings out three qualifications that identify believers as the true circumcision in this passage. And it's the worship of God, worship in the Spirit of God, Okay, glory in Christ and no confidence in the flesh. Why shouldn't our confidence be in our flesh? <coughs> right, we're sinful. We're dirty, rotten sinners. And where should our confidence be in? Christ, right? He's the only thing that we can have confidence in because he's the only one that can save us. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's, it means nothing. Okay, so we have, we have no boasting in that. Um, we are joys in Christ, and we are to um, live for him, okay? And then he brings out another example, okay? If any person has room to boast in the flesh, who is it? It's Paul. He's like, look, guys, if anyone has the ability to boast in the flesh, boast in these Jude- Ju- uh, Jewish ordinances, it's me, okay? So I'm not trying to impose all these Oh, no, that's not it. It's this over here. He's like, I'm not doing that because I'm trying to gain traction. If anyone had room to boast, it's me, okay? And what does Paul list as reasons why he could have boasted 
in the flesh. In verses 4 to 6. Several of them. Yes. Yes. He, he lists, you know, he's the circumcision, the tribe of Judah. He was a Jew. He was a Jew of Jews, essentially. And he's, he's like, I was at the pinnacle. But even Paul is saying he's rejecting Judaism and he's, he, it's not because he, didn't, he lacked anything in Judaism. He had, the, he had the perfect credentials. If you're looking for someone that could have achieved righteousness through the law, uh, through the Jewish ordinances. Paul was the guy that you would look to. And Paul isn't going to, he he isn't going to boast in that. And I'm actually going to jump down. I'm going to skip this and we're going to come here. Because I think it's very, so how highly does Paul regard his works in the flesh? says rubbish right he's like it is trash it is worthless and it means nothing okay and he is like i'm just gonna ditch it everything he had gained in Judaism was a complete loss and he abandoned everything and he happily gave it up because what does giving it up mean he can gain christ right which is how he's going to be saved because his works aren't going to get him there and paul knew that so he's like, everything I had in Judaism was trash, okay? And instead of boasting in the flesh, what is Paul holding to as his only hope for salvation? <coughs> Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that he can hold to and to be found in Christ and to have his righteousness because Paul's righteousness isn't going to get him there because he, is, he had fallen short of the glory of God as we all have. And he couldn't live up to that standard. And ever since, the, ever since his conversion, up until his conversion, he was fervently trying to do everything he possibly could to achieve the ultimate salvation. He was, he even took, he was persecuting the Christians. He was trying to live out his faith in this false understanding of what he should be doing. After his conversion, um, he realizes that he needed Christ's righteousness. His righteousness was filthy rags. And uh, this is the only way of salvation. And now, he is striving to be conformed to the image of Christ so that others can see Christ as well. I think it goes back to the key verses of, of this book. For Paul to live as Christ. His life was so defined by Christ that he sacrificed his whole former life. He threw it away. He threw it away as garbage so that he could gain Christ and say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a testimony, right? And uh, I, can't even, I can't even imagine. And uh, yeah, he strived to imitate Christ in everything he did and everything he said and to live for him. So, Paul's relying on a righteousness that is not his own, but rather on a righteousness from God that depends on faith. And as we read two weeks ago, Galatians 2.21 says, if true righteousness were through the law, what happens if true righteousness were through the law? 
he didn't have to die. So if we can achieve our own righteousness, then why did he have to die? He didn't. Um, and Paul is saying that he did have to die because our righteousness is not enough. We need Christ. All right. Did I skip a section? I think I did. I think we're going to keep moving. All right. So, what is the outcome for those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ? Destruction, right? Okay, false teachers, Judaizers, are enemies of the cross of Christ. And you're either one or the other. You're either a citizen of heaven or you're an enemy of the cross. There's no middle ground. There's no third option. It's one or the other. You're a citizen of heaven and you're trusting in Christ and his righteousness or you're an enemy of the cross and you're counting on your own righteousness to get you to heaven. Okay. In contrast to citizens of heaven, what awaits us? Yes, Will? Hmm. Yeah. Heaven, our Savior. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. And I think it's important to keep that in mind as we go through our lives is that we're not living for this world and its pleasures and what it has to offer. But we're living for Christ, our Savior, and we're living for eternity. Okay? And I think it's important to mention we aren't waiting for an event. We're waiting for our Savior. Okay? And our Savior is going to save us and bring us home to be with him forever. And he will transform our bodies to be like his. And we'll have glorified bodies. And we, see a ta- we get a glimpse of this um, after his resurrection, right? So we know that he's got a body and they recognized him and he ate, he drank, uh, recognizable. So we will have a body, a glorified body that will resemble our Savior when we get to heaven and we're with him. All right. Moving on to chapter four. According, according to verse six, instead of being anxious or nervous about our circumstances, What should we do? Pray. Yes. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we have access to the Father. An access that they didn't have in the Old Testament, right? Because in the Old Testament, they had a temple and they had to go, they couldn't even go in. Right? It was only the high priest that could go in, and it was like once a year. And they didn't have access to him. But now, through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we have access to the Father. We can lay our request before him. And the Gentiles, what access did they have in the Old Testament? Even less, right? Because we looked at it last week. Not only could they not go in, they couldn't even get close. There's a wall like way on the outside, and it's like, you guys can't come in. This is the closest you can get. But now, through the cross of Christ, we have access to the Father. And we can lay a request before him. Okay? And God knows what is best. Okay? We can trust in him. And uh, I think it's important to mention that God is not a genie. Okay? 
He isn't this, let's rub the lamp, lamp a little bit, and he's going to grant every request I ever have. God knows what is best, and he will work out everything for his good and for his glory. So sometimes the answer is no. Because sometimes what we think is best or what we think we need isn't best. And God has a different plan. And so we need to trust in him and trust in God as our Savior who's in control. So in verse 7, what will be the outcome of making our requests known to God? Yes. Right, in Christ Jesus, right? Yeah. So greater than our natural, logical thinking, okay? The peace of God, above all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we can have that peace knowing that God's in control. 100% control. And he's our father. And he knows what's best. And we can trust in him and we can trust in whatever his, the outcome is because we know that he's going to work out everything for his good and for his glory. All right. Moving on. Second set of questions. Verses 11 and 12. What has Paul learned through his ministry for Christ? Yes, sorry. To be content. Yeah. How hard is it to be content sometimes? I think it's important to remember where is Paul writing this letter from? He's in prison, okay? And Paul, how, how, think about it. He's learned in every situation to be content. It'd be one thing if he's writing this from his living room, you know, with his desk lamp. He's writing this from prison. He's content. And why is he content? He's content because he has a Savior. And his life is to live as Christ. His life is so wrapped up in who Christ is and what he did on the cross that he is able to say, I've learned to be content. And his ultimate goal in life is to glorify God. It's not to have his own mansion on a hill. It's not to have his own, I'd say Corvette, but he didn't have a Corvette. It wasn't to have a chariot. His life was, his ultimate focus was to glorify God. And because of that, he's satisfied because he has his Savior and he's content with everything that God had graciously given him already. Um, he didn't need anything else, and he was content in what God had already given. So I had to put this up here because this verse is ripped out of context more than I can even imagine. Um, Philippians 4.13 is quite frequently twisted out of context. In the context of Scripture, what is Paul saying in verse 13? Let me read it real quick. Well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is he saying in the context? Yes. Right. He can be content.
Mhm. Das habe. Right. So Paul is saying that no matter the circumstance, through Christ he will endure, through the power that Christ gives. So I think that this is talking physical, as you said, and uh, he's, no matter how much he doesn't think he can endure a circumstance, God will give him the strength to work it out, or to do it. When he'd reached his physical limit, God will provide the strength so that he can continue to serve and he can continue to glorify God. So, as a lot of people use it nowadays, it doesn't mean, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can lift up this weight. I can do this thing. I can do this. It doesn't really mean that. And so, in the context of this letter, um, and I think, it's, I think it's interesting to say, so in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, what, was, what was Paul given? Do you guys Something to uh, make him depend on Christ. Talks about a thorn in the, thor- thorn in the flesh, right? So uh, real quick, I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 12. This is 7 through 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, I should, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then he is strong. And I think that that's really at the core of what's going on here. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what the thorn was, but he was given a hardship, okay? And he asked God to take it away. And God's response, wasn't what Paul wanted, was no. Because God wanted Paul to rely more heavily on him. And Paul is okay with that. Because in Paul's weakness, the strength of Christ, the strength of God, would be magnified. And through, he would have to depend on Christ for the strength to get through it. And I think at the same time, we need to depend on Christ for our spiritual needs, but even in our physical needs, we need to depend on God. And we need to trust in him that he knows best and that he's ultimately in control. So, how could you accurately apply Philippians 4.13 today and say as Paul did, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So what's an instance where this would accurately apply. Yes. Okay. Yeah. See another hand. Yes. Yeah. Any others? Yeah. Yes. Oh, but, uh, it just gives you relief during suffering. So 
and you know what's best, right? So sometimes it's, it's hard not to get the answer that we want, but we need to remember that God's in control and we can be content because we have our Savior. And with Paul, hopefully we can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, that was what defined Paul's life. And he says that, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Okay? We're given people in scripture and I believe that we could apply that as well today where we have people, if they're f- accurately following scripture and actually accurately following Savior, uh, to follow them as they follow Christ. And we can look at Paul as an example um, because for him, his life quite literally meant service to God. That's what he lived for, and that's ultimately, death was his gain because he did die. And it was shortly after this letter, we believe he was, he was martyred in roughly 65 AD. Um, but he finished his race, he finished his course, and he kept the faith. And uh, so I've challenged that. My challenge for you guys this week would be to live for Christ in everything and be content in whatever circumstance he has you in and trust that he knows what is best for us. So let's go ahead and uh, close in prayer real quick. Father, thank you for um, giving us this opportunity to look at your word and to look at the book of Philippians. And I just pray that as we go about our week this week that we would remember um, to live for you and to um, strive to make you known to those that don't know you and that we'd be light in this world and that we would strive so that we can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Help us, help our lives, help us to make our lives so evidenced by the gospel that it comes out in front of everyone. Help us to live for you, be with us as we go to our worship service, that you'd be magnified and glorified and praise all in your name.